Hi, you are through to the B podcast with me, Sabelle, and we have a returning guest. We have Tom Stewart. Um, I was going to say in the house, but you're not in the house. You're in Edinburgh. <laughs> Hi, Tom. Hello. Hello. Hey. We're in our houses, I guess. Our houses, our respective homes. Um, I'm just going to catch people up in case you didn't catch uh, Tom and I's episode in the first season. Tom is a Welsh writer based in Edinburgh where he works as an English language teacher. Um, he has written a poetry pamphlet uh, called Empire of Dirt. It uh, was published by Red, Red Squirrel Press. I don't know why I'm getting my words mumbled and jumbled. Um, you've been featured in Best Scottish Poems, We've Done Nothing Wrong, We've Nothing to Hide, The Amsterdam Quarterly and Other Poems, Ink, Sweat and Tears, the Glasgow Review of Books, the Stockholm Review of Literature, Orm Comely, and a lot, a lot of others. And you're always, you're always doing stuff. You're always reading and you're always, you're always out there and I love it. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Please. I know, I say more please, but I know more's coming. I'm just being selfish and impatient. Yes. More is coming slowly and steadily. Good, good, good. <laughs> Ah, so the last time we spoke, we spoke like on creative processes and specifically for us writing. Um, we spoke maybe a touch too much about Philip Pullman, so that's the that's the only time I'm gonna say that name and it's Off done. Table. Yep. <laughs> um so where are you at now? What's life looking like at the moment? What's work looking like at the moment? Uh, yeah, work is good. Um, yeah, still, I'm full-time, still uh, intrepid English. Um, so teaching face-to-face -face students, working on blogs, bits and bobs, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then with regards to my own writing, I'm working on my first poetry collection um, with my mentor, Claire Askew, who's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that's coming along. And that's all about, I think we briefly touched on it last time, but all about, you know, um, grief, toxic masculinity, mm. uh, mental health, um, yep. et cetera. And then I'm also working on, I guess, I, I, I kind of hesitate at the term novel. I don't know why, I guess, like, <laughs> but it, it is, I guess, in it terms is. of length, um, which is about a kleptomaniac. And I usually find this in my fiction, I'm more interested in exploring women. So it's about, uh, I think, I say she's 62, but I think in terms of the date, she's probably more like 58, but whatever. She's around that age and she's a kleptomaniac and she's getting herself into trouble because she's a very impulsive person. Um, when, when in my poetry, I like to explore male issues, I guess. And when I say male issues, I think I, I mean more like uh, male mental health and what yeah. that means, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, yeah. So. That's I'm glad, well, I'm definitely glad that you brought that up because I want to, I want to kind of, I was going to say poke at it. I don't want to poke at it at all. I would just like to explore it. Um, what does mental health look like? Or, well, no, what does mental, men's, men's or male mental health mean to you at the moment? Mm. Is it like this hot topic that doesn't actually mean anything? Is it hollow term? Or does it have some weight? No, I think it has a lot of weight, mm -hmm. especially in the sort of world that we live in now, where mm -hmm. we're constantly questioning things, 
we're questioning gender, mm. um, we're questioning the roles of gender. So I think it's a huge topic. And I think it's such a big question. I think the only way I can go is yeah, yeah. when I hear men male mental health, for me, it's so closely wound up in masculinity mm -hmm. and the version of masculinity that uh, we've been told we have to portray. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's my way in. Yeah, <laughs> that's that, that's that's what comes to mind. Definitely. That's how I that's my way in as well. Well, yeah, kind of my way in. Um, I mentioned before in my experience experience of men um especially as so um I don't know why I'm hesitating saying this but as someone who worked as a stripper as a dancer so in that environment what I found were men who were looking for intimacy not necessarily sexual intimacy um men who were looking to be seen to be listened to and heard and like more often than not a lot of people just needed a hug mm. yeah yeah i think there's yeah the i think going really basic i guess but like i can only really talk from my experience yeah, and like yeah, the friends that i grew up with but as a boy it was very much like don't feel your feelings which we know all kind of comes back to that yeah and then that led into not being able to communicate a how I felt and then be just verbalizing things so that's it makes sense to me why I started writing at a young yeah. age because it was my way to do that but with a lot of my friends it was put in through something physical mm -hmm. you know um if a man's angry then he goes and chops some wood and shows his anger that way yeah. because there's no words there's no vocabulary for it yeah. it's just the physical yeah um so I find that quite interesting as well, yeah. as we're exploring and just questioning. It's just that's something, right? Yeah, definitely. I've seen a lot of dudes punch walls as well. Mm. Mm. And I'm always a bit like, when I was younger, I would just watch someone do it and go, why? Mm. Why are you doing that? Why mm. are you punching a wall? But it's because there's no, they haven't explored their language. Mm. They haven't been given allowance to access that feeling and to explore it for themselves yeah yeah and it's like this internal battle I mean having gone through a period of anger myself like there's an internal battle where you're trying you want to communicate as you were saying like yeah. you want to be able to say how you feel but you can't so the only default emotion is anger and rage and that ties up into how we show our strength mm -hmm. and as men, how we show our strength and our power and our dominance mm -hmm. to assert that over a situation we can't control. Mm -hmm. So you have all these kind of things going on at the same time where it's yeah, like, definitely. you can't verbalize, you want to control, you can't. So you start doing this. And then I guess this feeds into a bigger issue into the people who are on the receiving end of that usually are women. Mm -hmm. And this leads into a huge violence against women uh, pandemic in a way to use that word again. Yeah. I like, I really connect to that. It is that it's the conflict within the conflict. So it's, I've had a big journey with anger in and of myself. 
and had this rage that's always been present because it's 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 almost been the anger has been stewing for so long it's just become rage <laughs> it's just it's gone on for too, so long not too long it's just gone on for as long as it has but funnily enough I got angry yesterday and it was even at this point that I'm at now where I feel more whole and I feel great and I feel more understanding and all this you know all these wonderful things to then experience anger again as I will do throughout my life but to then still feel that inner conflict of I want to be able to just be angry and express that anger and say fuck shit like say whatever that is Mm. but at the same time I want to be able to like instantly put like a balm on it or heal it or lessen it or bury it or shove it to one side and not deal with it because it's a lot it's a lot of energy and it's very intense and it's Mm. a lot to like handle in the moment Mm. I see it as a very loud energy it's a very intense energy that can be all-encompassing yeah and it's that balance of being able to give into it well not give into it but feel it enough to express it without harming anyone including yourself but then also be able to like give it understanding and some care and some compassion and like be able to have a conversation with it in and of itself Mm, yeah it's fucking hard and it's (laughs) it's a it's a process that you have to be open to learning about and explore but it's i think for both, for whatever sex you are, I think anger is definitely one of those things that society as a whole, we have a really hard time understanding and, and, and even utilizing. I've come to understand my anger as something that is a motivator. I'm upset with something, I'm angry about something. And I'm, I've recognized that I can use it to motivate myself to then change if change is possible. Mm, I see, I mean, I see anger, I guess from my experience, and I'm also thinking of a film I watched recently, but it's just a mask Mm. for the real thing. And the real thing is usually pain. (laughs) And the film I'm thinking about is a Korean film called I Saw the Devil. Mm. Um, And it's about this woman who gets murdered by the serial killer. Uh-huh. And her fiance decides to track down the serial killer. Um, and you would think that would be the end of the film, but that happens in the first 20 minutes because he then decides to torture the serial killer, not in the obvious way. He frees him out to do his things, but he's constantly on him and tracking him wow. and hunting him down and stopping him from hurting people. And this game goes on for two hours. And by the end of the film, the fiance is walking away from what he's done to the serial killer. And all he has left is pain. His anger has, the mask is gone because there's no more anger anymore. He's dealt with it, dealt with it, I say in quotation marks. And the end of the film is he just weeps. He just breaks his fucking heart out. And that's the end of the film. And I just clapped because I was like, that is it. That is anger to a T. And because what do you have left after it? Nothing. Yeah. Again, first-hand experience of that. I, uh, a good mutual friend, uh, Sarah, <laughs> named it. She was like, I get, I don't know if she said she gets scared, but she gets very concerned 
when angry sad Sabella is present because it's not what it's not angry or sad it's angry sad because it's both it's this cocktail of both of those things mm -hmm. yeah yeah, 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 yeah. When I think when I see anger in people, I take a step back because Ooh. it is, it's like a volcano has erupted and the lava is going to get you at some point. Oh my gosh, yes. So it's, but it's, it's, I mean, I think I'm mainly thinking about male anger anyway, as we're thinking about male mental health, because yeah. I have had a little bit of that experience that you talked about where like anger can be a motivator. Yeah. And like instead of coming to the point where you just have sadness and despair mm -hmm. you can actually use that emotion and fuel it into something and i guess that's happened with me in terms of writing where yeah. i'll put that anger into a character's perspective or something mm -hmm. or write a poem that's really angry well my mate said that the pamphlet was mm -hmm. enraged and i was like thank you <laughs> <laughs> oh that's a great validation mm -hmm. yeah. so yeah can i can i quote that can i put that on the, the next issue of the pamphlet <laughs> Uh, I think, yeah, I think, again, from experience, I'm from listening to yourself and other people. Um, I often say just being human is really vulnerable, super vulnerable. And so, so is our sadness and our sorrow and our grief, which is something we'll probably talk about very shortly. But um, sometimes I think anger is our way of protecting the sadness and the more tender, vulnerable part of the emotional experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Angus, Angus the big, the big, like the older sibling or the, the defender that's like, do not come near this. It's too tender. Like, fuck mm -hmm. off. <laughs> mm. It's too much. Yeah. But I think that ties quite nicely into what you were saying earlier about men, especially, like, there's that desire to um talk and be understood and be loved for yeah. who they i am yeah, yeah. are yeah and you know we both have a fondness for gladiator one of the greatest films ever <laughs> um i can't remember if i told you this story but it was recently i watched it again uh, yeah. <laughs> um and i've watched that film so many times and that scene where commodus yakking phoenix is with his dad um in the, the emperor uh, in the tent yeah, yeah. richard harris and he's basically, I've watched that scene so many times and this time I was watching it and I was like, this is a boy begging his father to love him. Yep. That's all he's asking for. thousand percent. Mm -hmm. And he's just, um, there's, it's, there's so much in that scene where like, you know, he's basically saying, I'm not great with a sword. I'm not strong like Russell Crowe is, who you think will make a good emperor because he has the typical male strength, the typical male masculinity. Yeah. I don't have that. I'm a poet. I like to read. I'm more in touch with my emotions. That should be worthy of an emperor. Yeah. But it's not in his dad's life. Should that not count for something? Yeah, exactly. Like these are things like compassion would mm. be good for Rome, no? And there's that moment in that scene where his dad could just say, You're right. I love you let's do it basically mm -hmm. and he doesn't he decides to just like it's kind of like they've they've already made this relationship in richard harris's mind it's done he's made up his mind yeah he uses that phrase your faults as a son and my failings as a father which is just yeah. an excuse and what does commodus do 
he crushes his father, he smothers his father. And in doing that, he takes on that masculinity, that toxicity, almost from his dad, because mm. he didn't get that acceptance. And that's the man he becomes. Yeah. And that's what happens in that scene. There's so much. He just fully embraces the sins of, you know, the, the, that term, the sins of my father, my failings as a father, in literally crushing him mm-hmm. or smothering him. But I see it as the same thing. He just like crushes him. Um, yeah, it is taking on what is like, it's, and it's almost like, um, well, fuck you. I'll fucking show you then. I'll step yeah. into these shoes that you wanted me to, you know, step into so badly. And oh, that's yeah. what comes of it. And it's, it's absolute destruction and degradation. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm, that kind of fascinates me in terms of character. Cause yep. the novel I was working on over lockdown which I'm still touching up, but Peter Pan is in that. Mm-hmm. And Peter Pan um, just wants to be loved. That's yeah. really kind of his uh, thing as a character. Love me and I'll love you back. Mm-hmm. Betray me and I won't forgive you. Mm-hmm. And he does have a, 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 an ability to forgive, but there's only so much. And basically the trajectory of that character is in book one, you know, he's willing to give love. He wants to give love. And then by, as it goes on, there's just that because he's been rejected and betrayed and all these things and his love has just been thrown back in his face, he decides to just burn everything down. So it's just, there's that decision, isn't there, to burn it all down or to try again. And unfortunately, a lot of people decide to just burn it all down. I was just about to say that, again, in my experience and my witnessing, I see people who are just willing to burn it all down and never try again and just go based off of that. Maybe it is one experience, maybe it's a buildup of experiences, but then this just complete shutdown, this unwillingness to, to try again or to even go near that area again. It's like, no, it didn't work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah, it, it's it's a surrender in a way, but it's that's not how it's seen. It's just because mm. there's so much pain there. It's like, why should I put myself out there yeah. to be hurt again? Mm-hmm. Um, so you close yourself off, you put up that wall, etc., yeah. metaphor, etc. But yeah, it's it's surrender. Yeah. You surrender into a life that's half of what it should be, I guess, without con- communication or connection. Yeah. Oof. Big topics. Big topics. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they are. Um, to keep on the big topic trajectory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about the grief because that's another deep one. That's another big one. That's another mm-hmm. one that we, I think, as a collective, there's a lot of. I don't know what the term is. There are a lot of feelings around it, but again, not feelings that anyone's really open in, openly discussing. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's okay, I'm gonna get, so I've had a recent set of experiences and I was watching a film called Nomadland with oh, yeah. uh, Francis McDormand. Yeah fucking fantastic if you want to watch like I see that film as something that is speaking to grief and speaking on grief and 
grief in lots of ways grief for um, a version of who you were or past versions of yourself for actual loving relationships that meant a lot to you uh, for places for things for past experiences and whilst I was watching this film like I ended up like ugly crying like totally sobbing and like feeling this really particular set of sensations in my chest and I've been very much in the habit of tracking how I feel through like how I physically feel so I was like really paying attention and um it made it, it made the, the film helped me locate grief in myself and then I started having these thoughts so I started journaling immediately and writing about my explorations on grief and, and these sensations in my body and for me if change well change I see change as a consistent force in our life and our experience and so in that consistency there's always going to be grief because we're always leaving something behind there's always this constant state of change that we're always in so grief is always present but it can be as quiet as like a background hum or it can be a fucking tsunami and it can devastate and take out so much and do so much like harm damage or change or whatever I say whatever because I'm trying to like keep the ball rolling in terms of chatting about it but the actual feeling of grief I felt in my heart it was almost like wasn't almost like it was this this feeling of a vastness or this space within me where that thing that was has been and is no longer there and it was this ache of space and in that ache of space it gave me this like tip of the iceberg inclination to the vastness that is within me and that was like, whoo, that's a big feeling. Mm. That is a really big feeling. <laughs> and yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave it there. So that's my, been my recent experience of, of, of grief. Mm. Mm. Wow, yeah, very vast. I'm trying to think of what to say back to that. So <laughs> in the story, I was just like, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, I know you've been exploring grief in your writing as well of, of late. So mm. how's that been yeah. going? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, good. It's it's strange because um, the collection that I've written is three quarters done. Mm -hmm. And my mentor basically said, we need to see more of your father when he was alive and get more of a sense of him as a person. Yeah. So I've been working on what I'm calling memory poems. Yeah. Um, and that's interesting because it's I, in a way part of a sort of therapy where it's revisiting memories. And it's almost like, you know, being Harry Potter when you fall into the pensieve and you're like standing in that memory and viewing it a bit differently. Yeah. Um, and just noticing, A, you weren't perfect just because you were a kid. Mm -hmm. um, and B, I think the thing that came through was sort of touching on what we just spoke about in a, a minute ago, which was, there's uh, a poem I've written called Poppadom, mm -hmm. because my father would make poppadoms on Saturdays with the hot oil, etc. 
and I always wanted to do it and he wouldn't let me and then finally when it came for my go he would just scream at me like you know watch your hands like don't hurt yourself and it was the way he could communicate how his care and his love because he was just terrified I would burn my hand and that came out with screaming at me and I thought then about when Amelia used to Amelia my niece used to be close to me when I would do the poppadoms and I would shout at her like you know watch yourself and like don't and again I've kind of taken on um, that from my father and that's how I communicate my love and care is through that frustration and that anger I guess Mm -hmm. so that was it's yeah it's strange and comforting to revisit those things because he died I think it's five years ago now Mm -hmm. um because since that since the point of death that's kind of what you really well at least what I thought of was just the death version of him rather than the alive version Mm -hmm. um and I guess going to what you were saying about the grief of oneself like I was walking around Edinburgh with Yannick yesterday and we went close to where Ellie used to live and I was like I might bump into my old self like you know that that would be a bit bizarre like we're not prepared for that here now (laughs) it was just because it's like we're we're so different um, Mm -hmm. now and to see one another obviously that would be very startling but to bump into each other like that it would just be well yeah it's it's it's, I I do grieve for that boy because you know he doesn't know what's gonna hit him um and also he's not around anymore so there is a grief there and yeah when someone dies at least when my father died there's like a piece of you that does die with them Mm -hmm. and you grieve the person you grieve the person you were you grieve the things that you could have had that you no longer have um so it's such a collection of grief and I think the thing I learned was people make it sound like grief is a collective experience. I think this is probably because like we've watched a lot of um, how uh, Jews behave when it comes to death. And it's really kind of like, you know, family together, like, and there's such a- Together connection. Yeah, exactly. You know, people make food and you cover the mirrors and there's such a tradition and and kind of ritual there. When my family weren't religious, so, it was and and it wasn't a collective experience for me because I was younger all the people around me hadn't really experienced that Mm -hmm. so I was just a what could be I guess I could be so there's terror there you don't want to get close to that person so that was a a strange kind of grief side effect where you you are very alone and that's it's bleak to say but it's true it's like you know I was lucky to have people some people Mm -hmm. that were there and helped but you do have to do it alone Mm -hmm. so so that's yeah and then you grieve for that you know you grieve for the fact that you have to do that for yourself so there's just a lot of grief within grief with it's like a a Russian doll in a way (laughs) that's yeah funnily enough I see it that way too and it is it's it's layers of it and there's the other thing is, um, I, I had uh, an old friend, uh, it's no longer a friend, that when I knew them, uh, their father passed away. And um, we worked together and um, I was with a work colleague and we were having a pint. And this person, so my friend whose father passed away, they had been trying to ring me, but I didn't know my phone was in my bag. 
And I was like, oh my God, so-and-so has been calling me. I went to go outside to take the call. And um, when I came back in, the work colleague who I was having a drink with, just went, what was with the whole, what was with the urgency kind of thing? In not so many words. And I was like, well, that person needs me right now. I'm one of their like support systems. Or so I'm a support person, I'm their friend. Like they're going through, it's really raw right now. And he went, their dad passed away not that long. Like it was almost like it was two months ago, get over it. And I was like, the fuck? And I turned around and I was like, you know, there's no time cap on grief, right? Mm. There's yeah. been two months since this person's father passed away. And you're saying they should just be over it by now. Mm. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, something I experienced, but I think Joan Didion wrote about it the, the best in her book, The Year of Magical Thinking, where she said that a friend of hers lost his wife. Um, and he said that the hardest part was that life goes on around you and mm. people expect you to sort of catch up and just keep going but your life has stopped mm -hmm. so you can't it's almost like you know joining a motorway in a way yeah. it's like you're just stuck there you can't go and all the people That's behind you again really yeah which <laughs> is like it's not happening right mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. so that was yeah that was really illuminating and i guess i get sort of going back to this uh, idea of being alone like mm -hmm. <clears throat> you do you read things like that and you go ah okay well joan didion's friend experienced that so i'm not alone because that's something i've experienced so there's something there about you are, yeah, in a cynical notion, you are alone, I guess, in a realistic notion, you are alone, mm -hmm. but you can find opportunities for connection that makes you feel less alone. Yes. Uh, I'm so glad you brought that up because I do believe that it is a, it's an, it's an experience and a set of experiences definitely make you feel alone and very lonely and for good reason because it is it, like it's so individual like your grief and the way you grieve is not going to be necessarily the same the way your your mum has experienced it yeah her grief is her experience and her grief grievances and her layers and her things um it's very individual and it does I think that's again part of it's like it's fragility and it's vulnerability and it's rawness is because it does it highlights the aloneness and the loneliness and that's another big thing that we try and contend with as humans yeah and yeah it really like highlights it mm -hmm. and, and I guess yeah, sorry you go in my talking about my grief experience and like watching that, that whole little story, I was telling again, I'm a mutual friend, Sarah. And uh, then we started talking about poetry and how poetry is like treasure because it's not like you can <laughs> Google. Um, it's not like I could just Google, what is this ache of space that I'm feeling <laughs> and like, you know, I couldn't type in keywords and then just get a bunch of poems that are gonna, maybe I could, but it's not exactly an 
it's not a set of feelings that I can just Google and then explore externally that way. But sometimes you find poetry or poetry comes to you and it is, it's like treasure, especially if it hits, if it like connects. Um, And it's the same with like films or music or whatever the art form is that either validates your experience and says, I felt that thing too. And Mm. here is my thing that I created that was born of that experience. Mm. And it does, it helps us feel less alone and it helps us feel validated in our experience, especially in something like grief or anger or loneliness, for sure. Because there's, there's a lot of like monopolizing of someone's feelings when, you know, if they, they're grieving, and as you said, like, you know, it's been two weeks, get over it. So people try and like tell you how to feel. And when it comes to something like poetry, like I just read um, What the Living Do by Marie Howe, who's it's a collection all about um, a brother that died. And just the, to hear her reaction to these things and how she felt it just kind of yeah like validates as you said like but also gives you ownership of your feelings back like people told me how to feel and now I know I'm allowed to feel this way because Marie Howe wrote about it (laughs) so yeah there's a conversation between poet and reader going on there um without the poet knowing I guess because she doesn't know I picked up that book and had my experience and read it but yeah, I'd recommend that collection in terms of grief because it's a beautiful, devastating, brilliant collection. Yeah. Uh, I was also going to tell a little story about um, connection and grief, um, which is like I've met a lot of half orphans over the years mm-hmm. since dad died. And some of these half orphans and I just butt heads. Like sometimes it's, we don't like each other as people, yeah. like just because you have a common trauma doesn't mean you're going to get on. Fuck yeah. <laughs> um, and other times it's, we've not been able to give anything to the other because it's just, you're in so much pain. You don't have room for empathy. And yeah. I guess it goes back to what we were saying about like just the desire to burn everything down. Yeah. And if you see someone who's gone through something that you've gone through, it's almost threatening. It's mm-hmm. like, this doesn't make me feel less lonely. This makes me feel more alone because, oh, someone else has gone through it. My feelings aren't original, legitimate. So you have a weird dichotomy going on there. Yeah. Um, but then I've met other half orphans where it's just been exactly what we've needed. And whether that's been, you know, a month that we've known each other or whether that's been three years, mm-hmm. it still has a huge impact on both mm-hmm. parties to and I think I was thinking about this last night because I was speaking to someone I know recently who's lost their father Mm -hmm. and we had a big conversation about the loss that they were going through and they were asking me about my experience and afterwards I felt really kind of emotional obviously sad but Mm -hmm. there was a new emotion I didn't know what it was and I was trying to work through it and I realized the emotion was just kind of I was in complete awe of the fact that I'd had such a respectful conversation where my grief was respected and their grief was respected and fresher. But I was just surprised that mine, which isn't as fresh, had the same amount of respect. 
And that was something really, oh, like very powerful and also something that I think is a lesson that I've learned yeah. and will take on that to respect. Respect is obviously a two-way street and that's why it was such a powerful thing, basically, I oh. think. Love a good exchange. Like, especially like I've been thinking about, well, relationships has been such a big theme, not just for me, but collectively, but like, you think about the exchanges you have with other humans, other people, and some exchanges are on fairer or even ground, where you, in that, that exchange, you were both able, there was this mutual respect for each other's experiences. Yeah, and as, it was as you said, like we were able to. So yeah. Obviously, there's a like it's. That's the difference. I was, that's. I think that's why I'm in awe of this person because it's fresh. This situation they've gone through, but they still have that ability. Um, when I know it's easier for me now, but I couldn't do it if I were in their shoes. So, yeah, yeah it's very, very, very powerful. Very powerful, and you've hit the nail on the head. It's it's your ability are you able to at that time do you have the capacity to be empathetic or respectful or are you just or is the is the grief the tsunami are you in the tsunami state where it's just it's wipeout and there's no there's nothing else mm. it's just devastation mm. and then that's the sign of good friends isn't it where you know oh. you can they'll they'll hang around they'll take the tsunamis too I, that's what, I think I probably said this in the last podcast today, but it's my favorite story and little metaphor about, little fable about friendship, which yeah. my high school teacher, Mr. Mansfield, he'd say every year at the end of school, he'd say, sometimes some friends will knock on your door and they'll ask you to come out and play. And you won't be able to go because you'll be in the middle of doing something and you'll ask them to wait. And if you go back and you finish what you're doing, and then when you return to the door, they're not there, then they're not your friends. And if they're waiting, they're your friends. It's a fucking great fable. I want to hug that little story. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a wonderful lesson. It's such a wonderful story to give kids as well. Mm, mm. Yeah, it was a really big, big giant of a man, probably because I was so small. But I guess that thing that we see in like Hagrid and those kind of giants where he just had a very warm personality yeah um even as the head teacher as well like he was the one that would tell us these stories i think he liked doing it so yeah. <laughs> Aww. Mm -hmm. Aww. um big topics big topics i'm almost taking like a moment to like digest what we've said so far yeah right i know we've gone through male mental health <laughs> really Reef. quickly gone through male mental health that's probably my fault um i'm trying to no, think no, no. If i want to go if i may want to loop back to mental health from the male perspective i definitely i'm i'm i feel like i'm witnessing a sh i mean there's a shift going on in all areas mm -hmm. and of course i think it is i think i mean it's been a long time coming really but i think for those who identify as male it's, I think, I'd like to encourage, I'd like to be an encouraging voice to say, hey, 
mate, you can talk about your feels like it's okay. Mm-hmm. Even if they're like, you think they're weird or they're fucked up. Yeah. We have this like wave of writing now, you know, where men are exploring. I'm thinking of Matt Haig being the big one at the moment. He's just exploring, you know, the toxic masculinity is a phrase that's just been used so much on my tongue. It just doesn't feel a weight enough anymore, but it's yeah. true. Like yeah. it is, masculinity is toxic yeah. and that ties into mental health. That ties into, um, I mean, I don't know a lot about in terms of statistics and stuff when it comes to uh, suicide rates in males. So I don't feel like I have a, enough to talk about. I don't really. know specifics either, but I know it is categorically higher than mm. the suicide rate in those who identify as female or femme. Mm. Exactly. But it's just, just for me, it just all is just so wrapped up in. You know, uh, like you, you were saying before we did the podcast, you know, like uh, male stress, you know, is tied to things like work and, you know, value within the society, the family, etc. And if these things aren't, if they can't fulfill that, then well, who are they? And it's just, yeah. this whole process is just so vapid that it needs to be broken. To, to quote Daenerys Targaryen before she went mad, you know, you got to break the wheel um yeah. break that cycle and yeah, then that fits nicely yeah well, that fits nicely to chair amanda negozia Dici, who said you know we need to raise our sons differently that's where this yeah, begins definitely. so fuck yeah <laughs> yes um i think historically the onus has been put on on the female and i think the, mm. the most basic and ready example i have of that is how a female dresses you need to dress a certain way because if you dress a certain way then you're inviting it like fuck off (laughs) can you not teach people that they are allowed to wear what they want to wear and it doesn't necessarily signify what you think it signifies what someone is wearing has absolutely fuck all to do with you and everything to do with them and how they feel and how they want to present um yeah yeah because it's i think the problem with that narrative and all those kind of similar narrative is it puts the impetus on the woman not the man so the yeah the the point of view of the story is wrong in a way it's like as you were saying you know if a woman dresses this way if she walks down a dark alley or she walks alone it's all she 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 Mm. when really we should be discussing the person that's doing this which is the man um and change the now change the perspective completely and put the spotlight on the guy and that's the only way to deal with it it's not about putting shame it's about dealing with this fucking issue yeah i think a lot and i I understandably get why a lot of men feel threatened because they feel like a lot of fingers are pointing at them and they don't know how to deal with it and so cue more anger more shame more frustration more self-doubt more like it will exacerbate things that are already really present. Um, And I feel like that is the universe's way of like almost putting it in their face and going, you have to look at this. You have to look at this, this part of yourself Mm -hmm. and, and figure it out. And you don't, I think that's the other thing. You don't have to do it all on your own. We're not meant to do everything on our own. Mm -hmm. 
this very um, capitalist, patriarchal, supremacist notion of like putting so much emphasis and really glorifying this sense of like individuality that you're supposed to be able to do everything on your own and if you can't you're a fucking failure mm. like patriarchy is hurting guys just as much as it's hurting everyone else yeah. like, like you said with those ideas of whatever masculinity what is masculinity just like what the fuck is femininity femininity mm. again it might be an individual thing it might be femininity to me means something completely different than it would mean to you or my mum or my next door neighbor or whatever same with masculinity what does masculinity mean to that individual yeah outside of expectations from the world or the world's ideas what does i think it'd be useful for maybe some people to ask themselves that mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. are these ideas of masculinity and femininity yeah well, yeah as you said it's very much an individual well a concept we sort of taken from society and parents and stuff and then just yeah. like replicate it so it yeah. adds to that whole breaking of the wheel but as, as you were talking about the idea of um looking at oneself you know yeah. and that refusal and stuff it may, makes me think of um the picture of dorian gray yeah. um where and that idea of queerness where dorian gray is queer mm-hmm. and he's got the he's able to look at himself in this portrait and there's an argument to be made there about vanity, but I would see it more as he's able to fully look at himself. Yeah, He's able to see perhaps the, oh, well, he doesn't really want because he doesn't want to get old and stuff, but there is an ability to see the ugliness in himself. And that, that, I guess that's quite a queer concept. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a gay man myself, like you're constantly looking at yourself because your sexuality doesn't fit what the status quo is so you're constantly inward questioning that thinking about that dissecting yourself so it feels quite yeah quite a queer idea to really explore oneself and i guess that's the idea of queerness isn't it to question so Mm. definitely like it's what i know i think it makes me think of like what is personhood what is it to be a person, to be a being in 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 all of this? Mm. Um, it's a lot of questions, but I think from um, to tie back to the the first episode that's aired of this season is I've been an advocate for asking asking questions, ask yourself questions, ask questions of others. But I think definitely the questioning should start with you, and I also think again in there's been this pattern or this i don't know not pattern this attitude that of looking at yourself and it it's not a vain thing at all mm. to be able to say look at your reflection fully mm. and to look just to mm. look in your wholeness as you see it in that reflection it's not a vain thing it's just your ability to look mm-hmm. that's yeah. it and we should all I, I i would encourage us all to have that ability i think it's useful because mm. we're not we're perfectly imperfect there are things that are wonderful about us there are things that are beautiful and useful and you know delicious and great and there are the other things that like need some work need some attention mm. 
And I was just gonna say, when you look, yeah. you see. Yeah. My therapist would say, but who's the one who is seeing? I'm like, God damn it, <laughs> stop it. Well, I mean, to extend what we're talking about, I would say like the one that's seeing is the one that's looking. Because if you're looking at yourself, you're seeing yourself and what you're seeing is you. Yeah. It, well, when I was feeling really, really um, very disconnected from myself, I went through this a couple of years of like, I would catch my reflection and my instant thought was like, oh, that, that's what I look like. Like, that's what I look like? Hmm. I felt such a disconnection from my body and my image. Mm. Looking back, it was because I was, I was basing my image off the male, you know, being a stripper, being in a relationship with a man. My whole image was, even though it was, I was still classed as someone who maybe had their own style, who was quirky or whatever, that whole image, that person was really catering to the male gaze as well. So it made sense that for two years, when I would catch my reflection, I'm like, who the fuck is that? Because that's not me. It doesn't match how I feel. That's like this avatar that I'm wearing at the moment. That's a spacesuit that I don't, I didn't even know I put on. <laughs> Ooh, you know, yeah. really weird. <laughs> but my, to bring it back in terms of looking, my therapist would say, when you look in the mirror, and you look, like really look, tell yourself, I am the one that sees, I am the one that's looking. Mm -hmm. I was trying to get this exercise to kind of connect me again. Yeah. Yeah, because there is that disconnect sometimes between body and uh, like person, mind or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like... Who, who you feel like you are inside, yeah. Yeah, I remember once it was a very bizarre thought I had. I think it was when I was in college. I was walking home one day and I was just like, so when do I become someone else? <laughs> and I meant it in a purely physical way where I yeah. was like, well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to be bored. So I'll just like, you know, jump out of this body and go into another body. Mm -hmm. And that will be, I won't be bored then. And it was such, I, it was like a thought that I really entertained and like thought that that could happen and that should happen. And it was a very bizarre thing. I think that was my, I guess, my mind's way of trying to deal with the fact that I didn't want to be in my body in that moment. Yeah. But yeah, that was strange. And I, I do think about that sometimes where I'm like, imagine if we could just switch, but then I guess we'd all just be walking around really fucking confused as to who we are. More yeah. confused than we already are. Oh, God, yeah. I think it would just add to the confusion for sure. Cause for madness. Yeah. That I'm, again, I'm really glad you said that because I quite often look at guys. I have a brother. I live with my brother. Um, my my brother, I'm, I know he won't mind me saying this. My brother has been really going through a very physical transformation. He's been, he's changed his diet. He um, has been really committed to his exercise regime and stuff. And like, Especially in the last few weeks, er like everyone in his life is like, oh my God, you look so different. And he, the way he carries himself is different, all that stuff. But it makes me think about guys' relationships with their bodies. And again, the idea of what does a man look like? What is a man supposed to look like? Um, I hope that... A that there is this, I hope for men that 
they are taking care of themselves for themselves. But yeah. when I go to the gym, <laughs> I just see a lot of, not all, definitely not all, but I see a very large amount of guys who are trying to be something, trying to be something they're maybe not, or don't feel like they are, or mm-hmm. chasing an idea of something. This idea of what it is to be a man in a man's body. Mm-hmm. And it's it can be quite like weird to be around. Mm. I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm just gonna, just gonna do my thing over here instead because I don't know what's going on here. Don't like the energy. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah if it fits to that whole strength idea right like that whole yeah. gladiator we're just glad well we're just little boys pretending to be gladiators mm. um a student asked me uh, how do i write men and i was like i write men like little boys trapped in men's bodies which yep. is essentially what we are <laughs> i wanted to say that but i didn't want to say it because i'm not trying to be mean but that is my experience of men i even in my relationships, I think I'm in a relationship with a man. And as we go into our relationship, I realize that I'm with a child. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm not saying that as a bad thing, but it's like, this, oh. it's just a little boy in a big dude's body. Yeah, like, I honestly, I feel like a boy. Like, yeah. I, I don't feel like a man. Yeah, I was called a man today and it felt very bizarre. <laughs> like, not that I, I identify as a male totally, but just that adult yes. uh, label yeah, was yeah. bizarre to me because I think, yeah, a lot of the men I know were all just little boys that are mimicking. Yes. Well, it's, it's almost like, you know, when you're um, in a festival and then you just sort of get in a crowd that's going in a direction, you just sort of follow that direction. <laughs> and you're not really sure where it's going, no, but I okay. I'm, I'm it's like being in the chicken coop, you know, like you're all just like ch- cluckling along together, yeah. not knowing where the fuck you're going. Yeah, yeah. That's what being an adult is, especially a, a male adult, yeah. I would add, where... Yeah, we don't know what we're doing. We're yep. just thank you for we're, saying that. One of the very few men I know who will admit that. Like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. No, I don't. Like sometimes I look around and I'm like, people are treating me like an adult, <laughs> and it's very baffling. Like, why is this? Oh, because I'm a 28 year old man. That's why. <laughs> yeah. so. Oh, I have the same thing, mate. I'm in my mid 30s, and I forget that all the time. <laughs> and people mm-hmm. will treat me a certain way, and I'm like huh and then i'm like oh yeah you're you're a 34 year old human that's why <laughs> yeah you're supposed to know some shit apparently yeah it's like um you know when um when before you become a mister you, you're a master for yeah. some reason i don't know why they do it in that order for me it should be the other way around um but i held on to that master title for as long as i could you can hold on to it till you're 19 Wow. And they asked me, like, do you want to change it to Mr.? And that felt too soon. I was like, I'm not ready to graduate to Mr. Yeah. Um, and then it happened. And it was just so like, what is this? I don't want this adult label. I've always been. It's funny that you like, I get why you wanted that. You wanted to stay with Master because it was more to do with like adulthood and, and development. But I've always found the term Master really weird. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe 
makes me think of like the the teachers in the 50s that would wear like the gowns and you know cane their kids yeah. you know, or you know like master phillips and but then it also makes you think of like slavery and stuff so yeah exactly i'm just like the really me. weird fucking word man <laughs> yeah yeah uh, well that's something you know when i bump into 19 year old tom i'd be like you should have changed that earlier but, you know. <laughs> hindsight's great it's great yeah. um sometimes not all the time <laughs> yeah. um fuck yeah yeah i, I think we'll... i think as much as like um i said this before we um like hit record but like again from my experience um, I do think that I think we're all, most of us are just kids who are just fucking going with whatever flows available and going right. Is is this it? Is this are we adults? Mm-hmm. Does okay? Are we supposed to own property and stuff and have contracts and is that what adulthood is? I I mean I already know that's not what adulthood means to me, but. Mm-hmm. Um, Adulthood means to me being able to one, identify, understand, and meet your needs. And to be able to identify, understand, and regulate your emotions. That's a grown ass person to me. If you can do those things, you're a grown up. Mm-hmm. If you can't, you're still a kid. And that's fine. They're, they're no shade or anything, because we're all on our journeys and we'll get to where we're going as and when. But yeah, that's what I see a grown-up as, someone who can do those things consistently and effectively. I like that. I think I see a grown-up, well, synonymous with grown-up is responsibility. Yeah. That's that's what I got. Yeah, yeah. So much responsibility. <laughs> like, I walked past some school kids uh, the other day and I almost wanted to shout to them, like, enjoy it while it lasts, kids. Like, you all go into the park and, you know, you'll go home and your mum or dad's made dinner and you'll just do it all over again. Like, you know, enjoy it, you know? Um, But I like what you said. Like, it's very adult. Yeah. Very grown up, definitely. I think an adult is, like, someone who is able to do that stuff and do it effectively and consistently. And, like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah but <laughs> like god bless my mom the other day or the other week actually she admit like she it's part of a bigger story but i'm just gonna give this little snippet away but she admitted it was this like this little moment of actually speaking to um yes I, my mom's my mom but like the person that she is came through and was like i know i've been working for this thing but do i actually want it and I turned around and I was like, hello? <laughs> and she just went, I just realised that this thing that I'm working towards and working really hard for means that I'm going to be, that's a lot of responsibility. Like, that's a lot of responsibility. And I could see it, like, really sinking in. She was like, I don't know if I want that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's a really good thing to ask yourself. Because you have been working really hard. So ask yourself if that is something that you really want when i told my brother he like freaked out and was like what she's just asked herself that no and i was like mate don't don't get on her she's going through her thing (laughs) yeah 
Well, sometimes like with those situations, it's like, you know, the, the job and the status and the yeah, whatever yeah. all sounds so great, but yeah. really, do you need it? Like, do yeah. you need that added responsibility and pressure? Probably I think not. she was more so thinking about it in like, maybe more in a negative aspect because of um, her current experience with her current job. But it's like, mm. by working for this role and this title, and then knowing that comes with loads of responsibility. So when, if, if shit hits the fan, it's on my head. And I went, but yeah, equally, if you do your job well and you have a, a great team and you're able to work together, then you don't have to worry about shit hitting the fan. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. work, just like prepare for success. And then she was like, yeah. oh, okay, that's a better way to think about it. Okay. And I was like, cool. But I still think you should ask yourself whether you really want this. But I just, yeah, I was almost like reverse or like, because I am, you know, I kind of, I guess I play more of a parental figure for my mom, but um, that's a different topic for a different time. But <laughs> I'm glad that even as a perceived adult who's like well into their adulthood was able to have this moment of like, holy shit, do I want this thing? What does this thing mean? <laughs> mm, yeah. But you just made me, yeah. sorry. No, no, go for it. Uh, I'm done. You just made me think in terms of, yeah, like growing older. And I, I see the people around me my age are trying to replicate what being an adult means, not really sure what that means. Yeah, yeah. And then I see like my mother and my aunts and her pals where like, they have that ability to be like children again. <laughs> where they've, they've just kind of thrown away this we have to be adults thing we're already adults but now we can just play yeah. and be silly with each other um and they are like I, I find my friends are not silly when I look at like my mum's friends and how they interact they're so silly with each other yeah, yeah. and they're always like teasing or doing silly little things and just playing around because they don't need to pretend to be adults they just yeah. are yeah yeah you know so and it kind of fits with your definition thanks sorry (laughs) um we've spoken about this before no need for sorry about like yeah looking at our friendships and going we're actually really serious not serious Mm. but we're not as maybe as silly or as playful maybe Mm. yeah this is something that i've thought of is like I think it's like a lot about maturity in one's friendships Mm. where if you're mature in the friendship, then you can be silly with each other and you understand that person that, you know, what is said or done is all in, in jest and it's a joke. It's not like, you know, what did that mean? Or what does it, what does blah, blah. So if you're mature in the friendship and comfortable in the friendship and feel secure in the friendship, then that you can be silly and joyous, you know? I clap at that because I think so often people get too comfortable too quick without actually having developed the relationship. Yeah. And then, yeah, so I, I think a lot of that kind of ability to be silly or be like really playful, you have to, there has to be an investment in the relationship and, and, and an openness to learn about each other, mm-hmm. which hopefully you know, is part of the natural process of, of, you know, experiencing that relationship. But then, yeah, you will get to a point where you can, like, you can take the piss and know that it's, it's just jokes. 
and we're just having a good yeah. Day. Yeah. Just banter me, you yeah. know, no big just... deal. But like, I, yeah, because I just thought like in a marriage or whatever, you go through lots of things, of course, but if it's a divorce, it ends. Yeah. With friendships, you kind of, you go through marriages with them. You go through divorces with them. You go through grief with them. You go through moving country with them. Mm-hmm. So you experience lots with friends and it's naive to think that you're not going to change and change with one another. Yeah. So, and also to to understand that it's totally natural to grow apart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had a partner who thought it was weird that I didn't have friends that I had had for like a certain amount of years because they had the same friendship group that they had since they were a teenager. They mm. all live around each other. Their kids grow up around each other. Like I like that's their setup, and that all works for them. And he thought almost to the point of trying to make me feel bad for not having long-term relationships like that. And I'm like, yeah, but life changes. People move away. People fall out of contact, fall out of love, fall out of connection for lots of different reasons. And they're not all bad. I think it's a natural part of just living. And he didn't get it. He thought I'd, I, I don't know if he was questioning like, my merit is a person like what the fuck is wrong with this person who doesn't have any friendships past a certain amount of years mm. yeah me. but it's it's a lot of life isn't it, it so is. you know like it's hard enough to live through your own life and deal with it let alone you're asking someone to live on the side with you and go through it with you mm. it's a lot for someone to do so i don't even think that's the sign of like a good or a bad friend as you said no. it's just life like, people drift apart people move on and sometimes also yeah I think also maybe perhaps in a healthy way sometimes they don't and sometimes you do have friends for a long time I mean my I'm thinking like my mum's got like friends from when she was a kid but it's not that group kind of setup like you said it's more like you know there are two uh, from like you know when they were kids and then there's like two from work and she's got a lot of friends around her from different periods of time I guess yeah yeah for sure I yeah I've my yeah I've got a lot of I've got a lot of relationships behind me but I'm quite happy to know when I've outgrown a relationship I don't I will hold my hand up and say I've realized admittedly I haven't always handled the ending well I have ghosted a lot of people and hold my hand up and say that wasn't always the best way to deal in a couple of instances yes it was ghosting or just going silent was the right thing to do but in all the other instances, I could have handled it a bit better and actually communicated that I was now, I didn't think our relationship, I, I basically wasn't prepared or willing to continue the relationship and not with any hate or any harm, but with all the love, like I love you, love what we have, but I'm going my own way. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those just like, well, I've been listening to Frank Sinatra's That's Life on repeat yeah. because that, that, that song would be perfect right now. That's it. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to talk about as much as like these like more, I don't know, let's say for lack of a better term right now, heavier experiences like anger and things like grief. Um, 
something else that I think people are trying to talk about and trying to access more are things like happiness and joy and like we said play and fun those are like those are just as important and it's it's interesting to also see I've definitely had experiences where I've been joyous and it's aggravated people mm, it's almost yeah. like who are you to be so happy what the fuck are you doing stop it <laughs> and I'm like no you're not you're not making me be small in this no I'm gonna have my joy yeah, uh, Yannick referred to it as toxic positivity yesterday. <laughs> it's just like someone's so happy that you're like, oh, God, stop it. Uh, but I've been on the other end of that way. Yeah, it's like you're the happy one and someone's like, go away. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, joy is, is, is a difficult one. I mean, I'm trying to latch on to joy in my life. Mm. And when I... I think I either read it or heard it, I don't know, but the phrase was happiness is not constant, it's no. momentary. Yes. And when I heard that, that just, it felt like a weight was just shoved off my shoulders. It was like, I don't have to be happy all the time because that's impossible. We do, we can't all be happy all the time. <laughs> and also it's, it's not the, I think in the, it's, it's what we expect is the kind of default Mm -hmm. happiness is the yeah. emotion we must always go back to that must be our default otherwise there's something wrong mm -hmm. and I think when I realized that my emotion my default emotion was not happiness mm -hmm. and that there were moments that I felt happy that's when I just felt freer and that's where I was able to just like grab onto it so like the story I told you um, the other day which was just like it just finished raining and then the sun decided to poke out through the trees mm -hmm. and I did something that was not in my natural instinct I put my face into the sun I mm -hmm. shoved my face in and I closed my eyes and everything was orange and then when I opened my eyes everything was iridescent and bright and for me in that moment not only did it a help me move out of a mood and bring me some joy Mm -hmm. But it was a kind of metaphor for me where it was like my ability to put my face in the sun is my ability to accept joy. And then my ability to open my eyes and everything so bright and iridescent is my ability to share joy. And that when I came together, I was like, yeah, we have to accept it in order to share it. And then I'm in, I think, more in the process of accepting uh, rather than sharing at the moment but I'm still trying to emulate that in life um, yeah and just yeah I guess share my way of thinking with my friends which is uh, the first step of sharing that joy okay. and having a different energy you know where it's something I've thought about in my in myself of like how do we tell a story you know if you're in a you go to the shop and there's a really long queue mm -hmm. and you just want to get your bloody peanuts or whatever and your bottle yeah. of wine and then someone says something to you. It's interesting to see how someone would tell that story. Is someone moaning about how long the queue is and this person <laughs> talked to them and it's irritating and at the end of the day, it wasn't a wine they wanted? Or is someone telling the story of like, you know, there was a long queue, but I had these fantastic peanuts and, you know, and it's, it's not that toxic positivity. It's just trying to take some joy from the shit because yeah. there's a lot of shit around. There is and some, shit. Sometimes yeah. you'll find some jewels in the shit. Oh, yeah 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 sometimes you'll you'll find the the diamonds in the rough 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. Like, oh, because um, fortunately, um, for those listening to the podcast, um, I was someone who Tom shared that moment of joy with. I got it in the form of a voice note. And when I listened to the voice note when you sent it me and I was listening to you speak there about you putting your face in the sun, it made me close my eyes. And like, just listen to you be in that moment of having the sun on your face, seeing orange, opening eyes, iridescence. It's so simple, but it's so potent and it means so much. It meant so much to you and still does because it's a story that you're continuing to tell. Yeah. Um, And I love the fact that it happened, that it, it was nature that gave you that. Yeah, I mean, that was what one why you were the first person I messaged and I sent it to you like in that moment because I, I knew that you, you understood. I was still standing there. Um, <laughs> but you understand that the pull that nature has, yeah. especially when we're all going through, you know, something, um, you know, mental health wise or whatever. Yeah. Um, nature has that ability to remind you, A, there's some joy here, there's some beauty here, but B, the world's bigger than you and that's not a bad thing no. that shouldn't make you feel insignificant at all because you're part of all of this yeah and it's walking because so there's space for us all mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah exactly and like that's what nature's it's almost like nature's giving you this gift it's making you feel special you know mm-hmm. it's like giving you attention and dolling <laughs> you up and <laughs> When I was in the graveyard and there's this moment where all the trees come together. So you just have this shade kind of path that goes down. Mm-hmm. And as I was walking down there, waters kept falling on my head. And then I took my headphones out and I could just hear the, the trees shaking off this water. And it was all falling down like a, my own personal waterfall. Yeah. And it just felt like nature's gift to me that day, where it was just like, you know, you've said you're going to accept some joy, so we're going to give you some. We're going to sprinkle it along this path for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think we spoke about it perhaps in the previous podcast, but there's like the moments with a fox and there's moments yeah. with animals yes. that are very soothing and remind you that the world's bigger than you. And that's me, yeah, that's that's quite a, a big a, a big thing for me to be able. It's almost like the pull out moment in a film yeah. where you realize that you belong on this planet and mm-hmm. your issues are very personal, of course, but when you stand back, it just kind of lets you breathe a little bit. You're out of it. Yeah. So you know. Oh yeah. I yes, 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 and yes. Um to add to it again connecting to this the simplicity because when you when you are able to like take that big step back and realize that you are part of something bigger um you also and like like you said experiences or connections with animals or whether it's a tree or a certain plant or flower or whatever it is um th- as big as this is as vast as it is it's also very simple very simple and most of it works on a cycle as well which is also comforting especially because we have such like our own issues with change but to not change is, is welcome and it's good all their seasons have their reasons mm-hmm. and something that's really really been helping me and i've i've 
I've got it as a daily affirmation it's in front of me. Um, remembering that I am designed to be here. I'm built for this. Mm-hmm. So when I feel overwhelmed or whatever it is that I'm feeling, I found it really useful recently to just say, hey, I was, I was literally made for this. I was mm-hmm. built for this. I was designed for this. Mm-hmm. My body is my home and an extension of that is this, this planet, this earth. I'm, I'm literally built to be here, to live in this time and space, whatever that mm-hmm. means, but I'm built for it. And I found a lot of comfort in that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's such an interesting perspective as well to have about yourself. Like, I'm built for this. I can do this. I'm ready for this. That's nice. <laughs> I don't know if I'm always ready. But I'm, I'm not ready, <laughs> but built, built <laughs> like a machine. Yeah. Well, I, I've been reading the poet um, Joy Harjo, who's um, an indigenous poet, and there's a lot about um, her culture, which, of course, is the respect of the land and the earth and our connection with that. Um, and just from that little bit of reading, like it just shows the indigenous communities are so in sync with that stuff when we aren't um, this Western world we live in. And it just really just kind of reminded me of the importance of those small things. It, it is a really good testament to these small moments of joy yeah. that just come from, you know, looking up at the at the stars. Like whenever, um, when I was a kid, my mum would tell me that when you look at a star, that's um, like someone who's died, like they've gone and they've been turned into a star. Yeah. So I look up and I see my dead and I see other people's dead. And that's a comforting thing for me. It's a joyous thing for me. Yeah. So it's just, and as I say, joy and happiness, it's not going to be, you know, a fucking 24 hour marathon yeah. thing. It might just be <laughs> three minutes. So just take it and then you can pass that on in a way. Yeah, for sure. That definitely ties into, I always, I'm a big believer in you cannot give from an empty cup. You can't, joy is not going to come from you if you, if you haven't received it. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. you. how the fuck is it how the how are you going to serve that if that's yeah. a conscious decision even because i so a lot of it just happens on on a not conscious level as well mm. but I, I i definitely am wholeheartedly an advocate of like taking your joy when and when you can get it and taking your happiness when you can get it because you're right it, it very much ties into the temporary nature of everything like like yesterday I started off really like the first half of my day was super joyous and then I ended up like the end of the day was me fucking bawling my eyes out and like feeling really angry and frustrated um yeah but also finding like it makes me think of sometimes how you find joy in like unexpected places like like finding joy in I don't know could you find joy in your have I'm sure people have experienced joy in anger or joy in grief. Mm. Like mm. there are those nuances there too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that it just immediate thing that popped in my head was that scene in Stepmom, you know, where Susan Sarandon's dying mm. and her kids play Ain't No Mountain High Enough on like really, really loud. Yeah. And we just dance around the house and sing it to each other. Yeah. And there's joy there in the midst of this kind of pre-grief that's yeah. happening. Um, or you have those moments like this, um, a story that kind of makes me laugh is 
um, you know the serial killer Harold Shipman? Yeah. Guy, yeah, Dr. Death. Yeah. Because of him, they have to put like a clause in funeral home things where basically if someone dies at home, you have to say, I didn't kill him. Um, and for some reason, mum and I thought that was the most hilarious thing we've ever heard. <laughs> Just like the surreal thing of like, this is this Harold Shipman's being treated like a real person in this situation. Yeah. Okay. And we just burst into laughter and we're sitting there with the funeral director who's very uncomfortable, but it was kind of a little moment of joy in all the shit, you know, yeah. when those things happen. Yeah. Um, or like, you know, seeing humor in something that probably isn't supposed to be funny, but it is, you know, it's just ridiculous. Because it shouldn't be. That's exactly why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then, yeah, there's that kind of naughtiness where it's like, I'm not allowed to be laughing, which makes me want to laugh even more. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Tom, I love our chats. Oh, me too. Yeah. It's nice to just think and question together and just, there's no answer. Well, I guess there are some answers. We just haven't called them answers. They're just kind of ideas that we're floating around with each other, which is what we do in private. And now we're doing on a podcast for others. I'm so glad that, yeah. Um, Obviously I value our conversations, but it's so it's so sweet to be able to like do this and then bring it to a collective space for sure yeah yeah no well thank you for asking me I mean it was lovely coming on the first time but it's nice to be back yeah yeah series series regular Thomas (laughs) (laughs) for sure oh thank you so much thank you no no not at all not at all my Um, pleasure let me think are you still doing the um oh sorry no yeah yeah i was gonna exactly do that okay. you read in my mind <laughs> is there anything you can share before we go so what, what do they think yeah i forgot what they are what do you um well you can share anything it could be a song it could be a poem it could be a book it could be a tv show anything that you want to put people onto some could be personal could be someone else's stuff whatever you want well, in terms of TV shows, we briefly said this when we were speaking before the podcast, but um, Shrill, absolutely love it. Um, a woman's experience, um, just 20-something. And just talking about um, a woman's body, how being fat isn't a dirty word or a dirty subject. A yeah. uh, fat woman who's comfortable in her body and everyone seems to be uncomfortable with her being comfortable. <laughs> it's funny, it's um, warm, it's yeah just full of joy that one um and then the other tv show i really loved is fatma turkish tv show um brutal edgy kind of like you know breaking bad-esque brilliant um and i'm reading this novel that i've been reading for months i'm listening to it on audible um it's one of those books that someone recommended to me like six years ago. And then when I was at home in Cardiff, I picked it up and I was like, you know what? Now is the time. I'm going to, yeah. I bought you, I'm going to read you. Yeah. And I got downloaded on Audible and I'm enjoying it, but it's just so long. Like there's like seven different perspectives. It's like based in the 1700s in Venice. And yeah. it's basically just this like noble family and this, the son's really fucked up. He's like a fucking psycho. Yeah. And there's this like battle between him and his sister. Um, but I really am enjoying it. And like, <laughs> it has helped me with my fiction in a way where it's uh, from uh, his point of view and lots of other people's point of view, but he's kind mm-hmm. of the main character, the, the bad brother. And it's just so refreshing to read a really horrible, nasty character 
yeah. and there's no holding back there like and because it's his voice like the way he words things and the way he phrases things you're like oh god i know what that means you're so fucked but i love it i love it um i just think it's brilliant yeah so I'm, like really enjoying that um so yeah that, that's called um the book of human skin that's okay. the name of the book um yeah i remember when the person that recommended it to me was like this is this is a fucked book so enjoy it I was like, okay cool <laughs> I like that. Um, Here you go. Here's this thing. It's fucked. Enjoy. Exactly. It is. But I guess not in the same realm as like American Psycho. Like it's not gratuitous because that was yeah. a that was a bloody struggle that book. Yeah. And not in the way like I very rarely recommend A.M. Holmes's The End of Alice to people, which I think is a fantastic book. But yeah. it is so dark and yeah. fucked up that I would never recommend it to people because they all think I'm crazy. I guess now I've just said it out loud on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> people will look it up and realize, oh, God, this man's fucking insane. Um, <laughs> why on earth would he like this book? Hey, but, people are allowed to like what they like. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Just a lot of interesting subjects. But yeah, yeah. The, the book of humans. Actually, I think I've got it here. Yeah. The, the author's name is Michelle... Lovric. How would you pronounce that? L-O-V-R-I-C. Yeah, Lovric. Yeah. Lovric. So there's that. And then, oh yeah, I just remembered I'm reading my friend and um the my editor of my pamphlet, Andrew McMillan's new collection, uh -huh. Pandemonium, um, mm -hmm. which is very good, very different from his yeah. other two collections, but I like it a lot with much more political stuff going on. Oh. Um, so those are all the things I'm reading and watching. Um yes. And then just listening to Florence and the Machine's new Cruella song on repeat, on repeat, on repeat. Yeah. I haven't heard it. I'll give it a listen. It's a good, but it's, it's unfortunately not very long. It just kind of gets to the, the meat of the song and then it just ends and you're like, right. Well. So, yeah. Maybe I won't listen to it. I will. But... <laughs> Maybe I won't listen to it. <laughs> well, thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. As always, um, I wish you well. And, um, no doubt, maybe have you back another time. Yeah, that would be very nice, very nice. But you've got a very packed season ahead. I do, yeah. Um, so maybe in season three or something. But yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me. You're more than welcome, and you're welcome anytime. <laughs> thank you.